and in that room we have all kinds of resources for kids that are training, for parents who are training their kids um, to sit and worship. And then in the far back room on the left, we also have a nursery for kids up through um, age two and hope to minister to kids of all ages and families for their needs. We long to see this church not just be a church that's five years old, but 50 years old and see multiple generations um, of kids growing up in, um, in this faith. And so um, it's part of keeping our the vows that we have as a congregation when we baptize children that we will take care of them um, to the best we can. And so um, those resources are available. We're in the book of Galatians. We've been there for a long time. We're finishing it. We're in the last chapter of Galatians. We will finish it in the next few weeks. Um, by late July, we'll jump into the book of James, which I think will be a very encouraging book to you. And so if you want to um, jump in the beginning of a series, I think July 26th, I'm thinking of the right um, Sunday, we'll be there. Um, we're in Paul's summary statements this morning, verses 7 through 10 in Galatians um, chapter 6. And so we'll take a look at that. It's not anything new that he hasn't said, um, but if the Apostle Paul thought that the Galatians needed to hear it again, then um, we're going to assume that we need to hear it again too. And so we're going to look at that. Um, and also, um, Hallie and I have a chance to be at a minister's um, conference next week for church planners and church planners' wives, so pray for us. Um, it's been a refreshing thing that happens um, annually that we get to go to. Um, and so next Sunday, I have a chance of welcoming Mark Corbett to, um, to our pulpit. And so um, Mark is an RUF minister. If you didn't know, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, um, does our best to place ordained ministers on, um, on every college campus we can. I think we're well over 150 college campuses right now. Um, the makeup of colleges in Lynchburg is somewhat unique. Um, when you look at the different universities and colleges, and some of them let um, folks on campus, some of them don't. And so um, Mark carries the unique title that he's not um, the RUF minister to, say, University of Virginia or Virginia Tech, but he's the RUF minister to Lynchburg, um, which takes care of all the different co colleges um, there in Lynchburg. And so you've heard him before. Um, he'll be here next Sunday. He's a great preacher, and, um, and I'm looking forward to learning from him. So I encourage you to come next week where he'll come, and we'll take a little break from the book of Galatians. Um, I wanted to give you a little bit of a reminder of where we've been and what is the context into which the Apostle Paul um, is preaching um, to give you um, some confidence and encouragement in what we're doing and why we're doing it as a church, even in the culture that we're in right now. And I alluded to it in my introduction. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of the people, um, the people in Galatia and Phrygia, who would have been reading this letter for the first time. So first audience, letter of Paul gets there, mailman drops it off, they rip open the envelope, um, they're in a worship service, and this is what Paul has to say to us, um, the guy who was here you know, a few years back. Um, so this is the group who are there. Um, they're part of the Greco-Roman Empire, um, and they've only been a province in the Greco-Roman Empire for about 75 years. If you're unfamiliar with the Greco-Roman Empire in those days, it was highly political. Um, it was so political that especially during times of election and changeover in the government, um, the people who were running for office um, were close to even deified by um, the populace. It was especially important for a province like Galatia to be very um, pro-Roman government because if they were not pro-Roman government, um, then Rome had a habit of locking down, placing garrisons, and treating your province very poorly. Um, and so there in Galatia, they would have had um, a very high political bent. They would have been very involved in politics. Um, they would come close to um, being encouraged as normal citizens to worship um, politicians. 
Now, they were also um, a very pagan culture, and in our days, pagan means is kind of a slur, but um, they were pagan in the way that everybody um, was religiously pagan, and not just in terms of believing in a panoply of Greek um, gods and Greek mythology, but more particularly, these Galatians and Phrygians had come from a Celtic culture that worshipped the goddess Sibyl. Um, and what they had done with Sybil is they had seen in Sybil as the mother of all gods and really equated her with um, mother nature. And so she was the goddess over all things. And so not only there was this, this political, this is what you're supposed to be being Roman, but there was this naturalism, this spiritualism that was present in their heritage. And so they were a very religious people. Um, a part of that um, religious worship is um, they were prone to several addictions. The biggest one for those folks there was, um, was alcoholism. Um, a part of every facet of their Celtic life, um, they drank, and they drank a lot. Um, and it was well known that a part of, uh, whether politically or religiously, um, that they would constantly um, get drunk. Um, but they were not only immoral in terms of um, high drinking, um, but they were also had ritualized sexuality, and so it wasn't uncommon to walk by temples um, where ritual prostitution, both heterosexual and homosexual, um, was present. Um, and I won't go into everything, but America is anywhere near how immoral um, the Greco-Roman culture was in terms of sexuality. It was also common practice for if infanticide to occur. And so if you didn't like your child, um, it was generally accepted that you could take your young child and place them in the trash heap and leave them there um, and not have any repercussions for you. One of the earliest things we find Roman, Roman citizens and politicians talking about Christians is how weird it was that they would go to the local trash heap and pick up children that were left there to be exposed and die to bring home and to raise um, as their own children. Not only were these things um, present, there were also several social and religious um, conservative renewal groups that were active in those days, some within the philosophical realm. When Greek philosophy had come into that pagan culture, they got big into wisdom. And one of the things that was said of Galatia and Phrygia is they were very excited and curious about new philosophical um, ideas for the improvement of culture, many of which um, centered around um, restraining immoral, immorality and culture for the hopes that through restraint and morality they could bring change. There were other groups that came in and said, um, like the groups that Paul was responding to, we just need to go back to a uh, Judaic sacrificial system and that if you're a good Jew, God will bless you if you do and perform um, the right things. And so I, I wonder as I describe that culture, if you don't see maybe a few similarities to where we are um, right now. Um, we want to avoid what C.S. Lewis said, which is a chronological snobbery. Um, and Lewis said when he was writing, and he knew much more about history than I did, is we have this habit of always thinking that our generation is both the best and the worst, um, no matter which generation it is. So if it was 30 years ago, they thought they were the best and the worst. And 30 years before that, they thought they were the best and the worst. We're going to solve creation's woes, and also there's a whole lot that's awful that we've never seen before. And Lewis said that's just chronological snobbery. These are things that have always occurred. And so what you see happening, even as we've studied the book of Galatians, the apostle went in and preached a radical gospel of forgiveness through the Lord Jesus Christ. He said that by forsaking your sins, 
even the ones that I've listed so far, turning to Jesus and asking for mercy and forgiveness that you could find in him for any of the sins that you had forgiven and through the Holy Spirit that would then indwell you, the power for transformation and change, that you would become actually a morally better person, a more loving person, someone who was a better citizen in whatever state you found yourself, but that you became that person through the grace and forgiveness and power of the gospel. And that gospel was under threat, which is why, they, why um, Paul wrote um, the book of Galatians. And so I don't think you would call me, for those of you who know me, a very political pre preacher. Um, but in some degree, I am because I preach the Bible. Um, and I've committed to preach the Bible from week to week to week and proclaiming Jesus Christ's salvation um, alone. And I believe that as we preach the Bible and long for revival, um, that the Lord God not only brings personal revival and creates healthy churches that can weather cultural change, but at times revival breaks out beyond that. And so we've seen it happen in, um, in this area of Virginia before, in central Virginia, when revival has swept and massive numbers of people have been um, converted. And really, as you study the history of revival, it doesn't matter how moral or immoral culture is at the time of revival. When God wants to save folks, he does it. And so we don't need to fall into doom and gloom we don't need to disengage from society. As you'll see here, we have a chance to aggressively engage our neighbors, to love everyone who God puts in front of us, to proclaim the unwavering truth of God, and also to uphold the things within our, within our own church family, the morals that God has given us, because he said, this is the way that life works best. This is sin, and this isn't sin, and we want to pursue him in holiness. And so we have a huge chance right now. Um, I'm excited as our culture becomes more secular, I had done ministry in Mississippi for a long time, and we always joked in Mississippi that you had to convince someone that they weren't a Christian first before you can convince them to believe in um, the gospel, that everybody was a Christian. Well, of course, the entire state of Mississippi is saved. There aren't any non-Christians in Mississippi. And so there was another layer of saying, well, wait a minute, you really believe in Christ, or is this just a cultural thing? So as people say, well, no, I'm, I'm not Christian, I see a huge opportunity for us finally to engage people where they are and say, well, let me tell you about the gospel of Jesus. It's my hope for Christ's covenant that we would be a congregation like the Apostle Paul planted in Corinth. So if you read later in his letters to the Corinthians, he goes through this long list of sins. Um, thieves and liars and homosexuals and all kinds of stuff. Sins that people had committed. And then he goes in and he looks across this congregation and he says this. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were cleansed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I hope that that would be us, that we would even in our former lives have reputations for what we had been cleansed from. And so our goal is to protect a community of faith where any sinner can come and find forgiveness of sins. Even as our culture becomes more sexually immoral, there will be more need for us to proclaim grace and the power of forgiveness and healing for people who are involved in all kinds of sexual immorality. Um, and not only is homosexuality, a sin pointed out in Romans 1, as being um, particularly detrimental and particularly one of God's judgments on folks who, detend, who um, intend to run away from him, but I've never met someone who's been saved who has had a perfect sexuality. I've never had someone say, that area of my life is perfect. It was perfect before I became a Christian, and now I'm a Christian, and that's an area that I no longer need to do any kind of business in. I've never met that person um, at all. So when we all come, we all come needing healing. We all come needing the hope of the gospel. 
Um, and honestly, if we really want work to do in our culture, if we're talking about sexual sin, that probably is the biggest temptation and most affects our congregation uh, would be things like the temptation to pornography and adultery. And so we want to make sure that we are building a congregation that is strong in the gospel, that loves each other, that encourages each other towards gospel holiness, that encourages each other through worship, and proclaims a gospel that is for all people to come and to confess their sins and find forgiveness in Christ. That's exactly what's going on in Galatia. Um, so you can pick wherever you want in the Bible. Um, you're going to find, for the most part, a culture pretty similar to America, and you're going to find an outrageous gospel. Um, as folks said last week, the most offensive thing about Christianity is not a morality, it's our gospel. Um, the fact that there is a forgiveness that is apart from works that is only through Jesus. It is unnervingly offensive. Um, and I'm glad for those of you who are Christians here this morning that you've placed your faith in it. And so um, we have a rocky road, we have a challenging road, um, and I'm pretty excited about moving forward with you all into our culture as missionaries in Culpeper to love and see as many people converted um, as possible. And so um, that's why I'm preaching from Galatians. That's why I preach from, um, from the Bible. I don't need to preach from the Times or the Post. We've got the Bible, and it is always applicable. And so we're here in Galatians 6, um, verses 7 through 10. Um, and I'll read to us. It's the Apostle Paul. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Since this is the word of our God, let's pray this morning before we consider it. Father, we love you. We're thankful that you have given us your word that is without error, that is true, that your Holy Spirit uses to convince us of our sin, lead us to repentance, to equip us for every good work, to show us who you are, that we might be amazed in worship. For all these things to happen, Lord, we need you to come and to be with us now as we learn from it. We know, Lord, that no one comes into contact with your word without being changed. Either their hearts are hardened or they're softened. We pray for softening this morning, and that's only a work that you can do. Please, Lord, come, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we jump into this passage, and again, um, briefly, you see some of the Apostle Paul's summary statements. This is somewhat of a, a laundry list. I say laundry list not because they are unimportant, um, but because Paul has some things that he wants to reiterate towards the end of his letter. We're in a section of his letter where he's focusing in on imperatives, what you're to do. If you're visiting with us, um, the Apostle Paul has a pattern that he um, uses to write his letters. In the first part, he gives the indicative. In the second part, the imperative. Um, if you're not up on your English grammar verb tenses, um, indicative says what is true. Um, imperative tells you to do something. Um, most world religions do it the opposite way of Christianity, and they say this is what you should do, um, that one day an indicative may be true about you. Go and be holy, go and clean yourself up, go and do all of these things, and maybe one day you can be declared a son or daughter saved through the blood of Jesus. Christianity is the opposite. Christianity says that God in time has not only given his son to be an atonement for sin, but has saved people. And that declaration, that salvation that happens in space and time is an indicative statement because God has performed it both through Christ and the salvation that occurs in time when you profess faith in Jesus. And that indicative, that change that has nothing to do with you whatsoever leads you in thankfulness and in the power of the Holy Spirit to actually do something 
and actually make change in your family, your life, and your culture as you serve as missionaries. And so indicative first, imperative second. You get that, you kind of basics of Christianity, you get that mixed up, things get kind of messed up in there. Um, so save me some counseling help later on and just indicative, imperative, who you are in Christ and then what you do. This is the Apostle Paul's in um, the do part, and he's been telling you now for a while what the do part is. And he comes now to this principle that you see reflected in Proverbs 22.8. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, it's a pr- principle woven throughout. And it's simply this principle, um, the sowing and the reaping principle, that God has so ordained the world to function that what you sow is what you reap. Um, it's an especially difficult principle for us to grasp as Americans where we are because we expect immediate change. We expect to be able to fire off an email or a text message or post something and get an immediate reaction. We expect to be able to go buy the next self-help book, the next audio book, the five steps to your life, and in a good two or three weeks, I mean a good long time, we're completely fixed from whatever we've faced. We expect to be able to change in time, but the fact of the matter is what you do, what you do in the private of your own home, what you do in the private of your own mind, the kind of life that you live will reap a certain type of fruit based on what you do. And the Apostle Paul is coming very specifically here and he's saying, basically, don't pretend to be a Christian. You can't pretend and think that somehow God is hoodwinked. It isn't like you just, you know, flash your fake ID on the way to heaven and God just turns a blind eye and I'm sure he's legit, he's in. God knows exactly whose are his. He knows exactly whose aren't his. And the way that he's organized things is not only within his sovereignty has he saved people, like we've said, but he has, he has also sovereignty or sovereignly orchestrated the works that we do as Christians to be an evidence of our salvation. We're not trying to backdoor some kind of works righteousness. You know, you get in by, by believing in Jesus, but afterwards you better hold your own. What God's saying is that you actually have an active part to play in your sanctification, in your progress as a Christian. There are things for you to do that God has already laid out for you to do, and in the accomplishing of those things, you will give evidence of what God has done in you, an evidence of a true faith. And so you'll see James, to give you a little of a preview, to put James versus Paul. Paul will say salvation is not by works. And you see James later on saying salvation is absolutely by works. James will say, because a faith without works is dead. If you want to say, sure, I believe in Jesus and do whatever you want, well, we're going to bring into question whether or not that, 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 um, that faith claim in Christ was actually true. And that's what the Apostle Paul's hitting on here. Don't mock God. What you sow is what you reap. He's giving you an encouragement to walk in those ways. And as your pastor, I encourage you, the easiest and best way to be assured of your salvation is to pursue the works of a Christian, to love God and love others, to pursue love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, and self-control. You're not earning it before God, but you're asking God, would you prove in my weeks and in my days that I am truly a Christian? Would you bring evidence in the ways that I respond to criticism and the ways that I love other people? Would you bring a fruitful harvest? Jesus gave the illustration. If you want to know um, what a tree is, well, you look at what produces fruit. We had thought we had an ornamental cherry in our yard. Um, We had a whole bunch of um, Japanese beetles come upon it, and um, I got up and started shaking the tree to try and get the beetles off the tree. I'm sure that is a very ineffective way of... um, 
of getting rid of insects. Um, but I still did that. In the process, a piece of fruit fell um, from the tree. And um, we came to find out that it was actually a plum um, by tasting the fruit. And so um, we came to find out that tree was much different. And we found out because the fruit dropped from it, and we picked up the fruit and bit into it, and it was a plum. Um, and so that fruit said what was true about that tree because it bore good fruit. And Jesus says the same thing using agricultural metaphors, not only in what kind of fruit are you bearing, but the things that you do as a Christian, the little acts that nobody sees. And I'm not just talking about things that we look like good things, like doing good for people, maybe little encouraging notes to people, or sending them in the mail or by text message or talking to somebody in the morning and saying, I see God at work in you, but even the good works of repentance, of confessing your sin, of waging war against sin, we, we don't come in as some kind of like SS looking over your life. I don't, as I sometimes joke, bug your home, looking for all those small things that you do. And so there's this, there, you wonder, is it really worth it? Do those things really matter? And here the Apostle Paul says, you can look at a field, like putting things into the ground, and you put seeds into the ground, and we have a garden in our backyard too, we put seeds in the garden, and I can sit out there with Hallie right when we planted the seeds and wonder, is anything going to come up? Going out there week after week and watering it when there's not rain and weeding it and saying, is this ever going to produce anything? I have a habit of killing things. I'm a horrible gardener. But then in the end, you see them actually come out of the garden, and, and that labor done in hope putting things in the ground, weeding out the weeds of sin, those things that are small and that you can't see the tangible fruit. Paul says, keep going. Keep doing that. God has made the world to work that way. What you sow is what you will reap. And these are works that God does in you, so don't grow weary in doing good. Don't say, nobody notices, nobody cares. I need a bigger platform. It only matters if somebody hears about it or if I can post about it. Do the small things that nobody hears simply because you love the Lord Jesus. And you can count on a reaping later on because we believe what he does. And we have hope in him and not the flashiness of our works. He's trying to encourage you um, in that. Because he says, one day there's going to come a day where people will get one of two things. Either eternal death or eternal life. Each and every one person will be given one of those two gifts on the day of judgment. And Paul says that is the end goal of the things you're putting in the ground now. God's proving he has done a work in you, not only saving you in space and time, but these good works that go on. So Paul can say to the church at Ephesus, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in them. You're in Jesus, you're God's workmanship, and he has laid out a lifetime of good works for you to walk in. So don't grow weary in doing good because at the end of that walk is salvation, is standing before your God and seeing what he's done. So I encourage you to do that, especially with the people who are closest to you. J.C. Ryle, one of my, um, my favorite preachers, actually my favorite conversion story. I'm going to tell it one more time, even though you've all heard it before, because it's just so good. Um, he was an unruly college student, unconverted, going to a Christian college. Um, I've never known any of those kind of people. Um, and he was obligated to go to chapel within an Episcopalian system. 
Um, and one of the things that Episcopals still do, um, to their credit, is they still read the Bible and their chapel services. And so he actually showed up late to chapel service um, and came in right when the priest was reading from Ephesians 2, from right before the verse right before I just quoted, um, saying, oh, but it's by the free grace of God that you're converted and not by your own works. He came in as you know, bleary-eyed college student, hears the gospel read from Ephesians 2, believes and says, I need that kind of grace, and is converted on the spot. He later on going to be a pastor um, after his conversion, um, and he said this to his congregation. Don't wait until the day of your funeral. Don't wait until we carry you in that pine box and force us at your funeral service to hunt out from your life some speck, some incidents, some evidence that you were truly converted. Would you help all of us when we're all there worshiping at your funeral that none of us would be any kind of doubtful that you were truly converted? Give us so much evidence that you love the Lord and lived your life and loved the Lord that you won't put us in that awkward spot at your funeral to say, I don't know where he stands with the Lord. And I commend you to that. Let us all worship heartily at your funeral. Like, cut us some slack. You know, all of us at some point will bury somebody else. It's, uh, if I'm around long enough, I'll bury you. That's not morose. That's just a part of life. Um, if I get to go first, then um, I'm being a much better place than you all. Um, but at that spot, we should rejoice in the fact of what God does in the life of a Christian. Not just that he saves people by grace, but he uses us in life and that we are devoted to a lifelong, quiet, behind-the-scenes labor of good works for the honor of Jesus, knowing that our identities are secure, not trying to earn righteousness, but simply because he's asked us to. And we have found service um, to be better in his doorway than in um, the houses of unrighteous folks. So let's go towards that. And I, I encourage you, it doesn't always look the way that you think in life. And you see these comparisons within Scripture. And so you look at people like Moses and Pharaoh, right before Moses leads out um, the Egyptians. There's really not different, much difference between the two of them. Moses is raised within um, Egyptian um, kingly temple. He's given privy to all of the education. Um, Pharaoh was probably roughly his age. They probably grew up knowing one another because uh, Moses had grown up and um, the daughter of the, the previous Pharaoh's um, household. And so you have these two guys. Moses probably looked very, very, very Egyptian. Um, he actually named um, two of his kids. Um, he named them Jewishness, even though he had an Egyptian um, wife. And so you look at Moses and Pharaoh, and there wasn't much difference between the two of them, but God had ordained Moses to lead his people out and to be a man who would be shaped by the grace of God and Pharaoh to be a man who would be hardened by God. You look at David and Saul. You know, by all intents and purposes, Saul should have been a great king. He was strong, and he was big, and he was noteworthy, and God called him through Samuel, and all of a sudden, um, he wasn't anymore, and he despised the Lord and tried to perform a sacrifice instead of a priest, and God rejected him. And you have David called from the sheepfold, um, being harassed by Saul, being, you know, Saul's musician, almost pinned to the wall several times, being run out by his sons. If you were going to say, which one looks like the one that God is blessing as the king, you'd say it was Saul, but... In life, it was David, and it was the quiet things that David had done. Or even if we flash forward to the New Testament and we look at the difference between Peter and Judas, you know, throughout the ministry, nobody looked at Judas and was like, yeah, that guy, I keep your eye on him. Like when they came around to the Passover meal and Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, then it, you don't have it recorded that saying, well, I bet it's Judas. We all, we all kind of knew it was Judas all along. They're all questioning, like, who could it be? 
like Judas, unconverted. One of the 12, 12 disciples, nevertheless, you couldn't tell. Peter, all the way growing up, like all of a sudden now, throughout the discipleship with Jesus, he denies Jesus three times and goes back to fishing. Now you think he's been cast aside. But under the tutelage of the Lord God, under the grace of God, Peter's life of sincere, sincere service, small acts that nobody knew about, a willingness to repent by God's grace, a desire to serve, whereas Judas is a desire to betray. You don't know always in life what's going on, which is why the Apostle Paul says, continue with acts of good service. Love everybody, not just the folks who are inside of your church, especially love them. Um, sometimes they're the hardest people to love. Um, but especially love the people in your local church, but love all people. It's a part of the good works um, that we do. And so, like I said, very, very, very simple. And so you might be thinking right now, but it's just so hard. And even if I look at my own life, I don't see the sowing and reaping principle. In fact, I'm kind of worried about the sowing and reaping principle. I mean, when you stack up all the times I've been depressed or just in unrepentant sin, I mean, how does this really work out, Joe? Like a sowing and reaping principle is kind of unnerving to me. I encourage you, um, look to the Lord Jesus. If anybody was the one that it looked like the sowing and reaping principle had failed on, it was Jesus. He had sowed righteousness, and he received the worst judgment for sin. He had sowed friendship and love, and he reaped everyone leaving him. He had sowed eternity at his Father's side, and he reaped divine judgment from the throne of God, eternal judgment for sin. He sowed life as a faithful Jew and faithful Roman citizen, and he reaped death at the hands of both of them. And in that conjunction, that apparent irony of things never should have happened, Jesus, in that moment, in a story that looked like it was an absolute failure, was able to work salvation for us and encourage us that the sowing reaping principle is secure for us. So when you look at your sins and your failures and you wonder, is God ever going to hunt up some speck? some judgment or condemnation hidden under a carpet somewhere in some junk drawer in some back closet of the heaven of heavens reserved for me. And at the end, I'm just going to get whacked. You look to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one who died in my behalf. He was the one who took it for me. My sin was reaped in judgment for him. And so now his righteousness reaps in righteousness for me. If you wonder, is your life worth it? Are the things that you're doing worth it? I mean, Jesus had 12 disciples. One tried to kill him. All 11 left him, and he got spit on and killed. That's not a very effective ministry by any earthly standards. If I said, my goal in planting a Culpeper is to go three years and then be run out or killed, I would not call that an effective church plant. Uh, but the Lord Jesus Christ showed that his kingdom worked differently. He loved, and he was persecuted. He preached truth and saw lives changed. For a moment in time, because the Lord God came to earth and this little section of Judea, um, disease was eradicated, truth was preached, God himself stood on the planet. And in space-time, he worked a salvation that is now ours and a story in which we now share. So a lot of times, our story doesn't look like it's working out that way either. We look at our lives and think, how could this happen? We look at our country and say, founded by these Christians, how could it be where it is now? We look at Jesus' story and say, if our story is his story, 
We go through times of doubt. We go through times where it doesn't look like it's working out. What we should do is not lose heart. What we should do is not white-knuckle it. What we should do is look to our Savior Jesus and say, you know, you have atoned for our sins. You are working in your people. You have loved us with an unchanging love. Our salvation is secure in you so that on that day, the reason we know that we will have eternal life is because you've made promises to us. I encourage you lastly before I close with a verse I read from Galatians 2.20 in the beginning of Galatians. So much of Christianity is in the personal pronouns. The Apostle Paul, he had never known um, the Lord Jesus. He maybe heard of him. He certainly persecuted his followers. It might be true that Jesus' promises would be for his immediate disciples who had heard what he had said. But Paul says this amazing thing. I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live. It's Christ who lives in me. Life I now live, I live by the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's an amazing claim and an amazing invitation to all who follow in his name. For you to say, me. It's one thing to say Jesus died for other folks. Jesus made outrageous promises to the apostles. Jesus made outrageous promises to people in the Old Testament. But the Apostle Paul shows us this hermeneutic where we can take the promises of Jesus and that he intended them for you. If I take too long, it'd be awkward, but I'd go through and call you all by name. Jesus died for you. He gave himself for you by name so that you could now find life in him. And if that's true, we should expect to live a life similar to his. And if we're going to live a life similar to his, we need to hear the Apostle Paul say, I know it's hard. Do not grow weary in doing good. For in due season, if we do not fall, we will reap eternal life. That's what Jesus has given um, for us in Christ. And we have an opportunity to step into it as the disciples when I pray for us. Father, we're thankful for your word, which brings such joy and such freedom, enables us to mission, to share an outrageous gospel, but to share it with such winsomeness that it is more attractive than any other gospel. At the same time, Lord, we know that the gospel we preach is the smell of death to those who are dying. And so we expect, Lord, to be mistreated in this world. We expect to be derided. We expect to be gossiped about and slandered. We expect all of these things. We count it a privilege, Lord, to suffer as your son did. And we look to him for our salvation alone, not even the righteousness of our suffering. So bless, Lord, us as a people. Forgive us our many sins. Use our church, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. We stand and respond in song. Thank mm-hmm. you.